Man. It is go time. I can't tell you how hard that was for me, sitting still and being quiet there. Like, I'm an otter. I like to talk and make noise. So that was like, that was a spiritual moment. <laughs> 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 this is there, hey, I was speaking your language then, right on. Welcome, everybody. I'm excited to be here with you. My name is Charles Kaiser. I am the director of church planting for a ministry called Mission Alive. And uh, we help to equip and train church planters to start new congregations all over the United States and Canada. I'm also a church planter myself. Uh, About 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I and a team of people started the Storyline community in the downtown Dallas area in Dallas, Texas. That's where I'm from. So you hear a little bit of a twang. That's, uh, That's where that's coming from. Yeah, yes, ma'am. That was Texan, too. Yes, ma'am. Couldn't help it. Uh, Let me pray before we keep going. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing us together, and I invite you. um, I invite you into our awareness. We acknowledge your presence here with us and within us and among us. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to be a conversation partner uh, here with us to... uh, to speak through us, uh, to speak to us, uh, to help us to hear your voice so that we can, um, we can see what you're calling us to. We can, uh, we can uh, walk deeper into the way of Jesus. Uh, would you give us courage, Lord, as you speak to us to, uh, to be able to respond in obedience, whatever that looks like. In Christ I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So... When I was 19 years old, uh, I did my first internship at a church called Fortress Church of Christ in downtown Fort Worth. Somebody knows Fortress. Uh, and it was started by Jeff and Kama Metters, um, who were like, back in the day, they were missional ninjas before anybody was using or thinking about the word missional um, they basically kind of, you know, God was at work in leading them, but they were like, where, where are the places where nobody's wanting to plant a church or serve, and let's, let's go there. Let's do that. And they ended up in, near Lancaster Avenue in downtown Fort Worth, where the chronically homeless hang out, where there's lots of poverty, there are lots of at-risk kids, and they started this ministry, Fortress Church of Christ. And this was one of my first experiences kind of as a young adult coming into ministry and leadership in a place you might describe as the margins. Uh, It was the margins um, socially and economically for Fort Worth in a lot of ways. And um, so Fortress had lots of different programs going on. They did did after school care for, um, for youth. They, um, they had weekend programming where folks would come in, especially in the summer, it was really hot, and they would come in off the street and they'd feed them meals, they'd have worship gatherings. And um, what I recall more than anything that summer was how uncomfortable I was. I was so uncomfortable. The smells offended my sense of smell. Uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the difficulty hurting um, kids who, you know, had trouble listening or following instructions. Uh, it, w- it was hard on me. I was, I was around people who were, um, who were different from me, and I wasn't sure what to do with that. And, 
you know, no, no surprise, the end of that summer, I decided, you know, I'm not sure urban ministry is for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm passionate about other things. You know, I'm, I've found some spiritual sounding language to, uh, to describe um, how God was calling me in a different direction because I was just, I was uncomfortable at the margins um, in that experience. I found the margins to be, uh, they were, you know, they're messy, they're overwhelming, uh, especially working in poverty and homelessness. Um, you're touching upon systemic issues that are, they're way bigger than, than I could ever imagine um, overcoming on my own or even the small ministry that existed um, in Fort Worth. There, there are these mammoth challenges. And so I decided, oh, you know, I'm, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to go in a different direction. That's not for me. Like I said, that was kind of one of my, one of my first experiences at uh, the margins. And I, I didn't really have a lens or a filter um, to discern what was going on there other than my level of comfort or discomfort with it. I, I didn't have eyes to see um, anything more than you know, what, what I had been acclimated to see up to that point, which was, which was, which was poverty. It was unkemptness. It was the smells. Um, but I wonder, um, what if there's a different way of viewing the poverty, of, of viewing the margins. And I, I wonder about, about you all. I'm, I'm a interactive uh, kind of speaker person, especially with a group this size, not to in, interact a little bit. It's going to be hard for me. So I, you know, I, I, wonder, I wonder for you all, um, be thinking, you know, what, what is it that makes the margins um, so challenging? Let me, let me define the margins real quickly. Um, the margin is a metaphor uh, it's, a, it's a spatial metaphor. Um, it's, it, it's in relation to the center, right? There's the center and there are the margins. At the center is comfort and power and privilege. At, at the margins is powers, powerlessness. A lot of times is it, at the margins are oppression. Um, at the margin is discomfort. At the margin is, is a sense of otherness. Um, there's this there's this social reality about the center and the margins that that if if I'm in the center and someone else is at the margins that there is some difference between us there's some sense of of otherness and so that makes it difficult and challenging right um, and and the truth is um, if if like me you're white and you're middle class and you're straight. Um, you probably have lived a good bit of your life not at the margins. You've lived in the center of things. And so to, to venture out into the margins, into places, um, and margins is not just economic. Margins can be, um, can be social. Margins can be racial. Uh, margins can be religious. Margins can be sexual. There are all different kinds of margins. And, and to, to a certain extent, somebody's center is always another person or another community's margin right all of us um, navigate and understand and interact with margins they're everywhere margins are not um, just in some neighborhoods and not in others they're they're everywhere they're all over they are they are in relation anywhere we find um, anywhere we find centers however we define that anywhere we find difference there are margins in relation to that to navigate and on some level I think margins are, um, are typically pretty difficult 
um, for some of those reasons. They're difficult. They're challenging for us. Think through that with me. As you think about uh, the center and, and margins and what that means, what, what is it about the margins and your own experiences that make them difficult or uncomfortable? Okay. Yeah, some place I've never lived. It's unfamiliar. Yeah, whether it's for drug reasons, poverty reasons, um, lack of access mm-hmm. reasons. I think there's people who are not quite like me. You know, they mm-hmm. may be poor, or they might be very wealthy. Yep. Can go both ways. Yep. From the middle. Sure. From my middle. Yeah. We have margins within our own spiritual body. Oh, yeah. 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 Sure. Um, traditionally, uh, the ladies' Bible class is for women who stay home. Okay? And traditionally, the church is much more accepting of married women versus old men. And traditionally, churches are more acceptably accepting of uh, women with children. If you, now, if you're a single woman, that's kind of hazy. Right. And yeah, if, you're, if you don't fit in those categories, yeah. you can find yourself at the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a feeling of different or because outside. Your typical church is for the nuclear family. Uh-huh. And if you're not a nuclear family, you're a margin. Sure. That's a good observation. Welcome. Come on in. Yes. Um, so one of the things I think makes us find uncomfortable being in the margins is we don't know the proper way to behave, and so we fear offending. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we come across as being judgmental because we're just afraid of talking. Yeah. There is, there are, I mean, some of that is, Margins can be cross-cultural in that um, cues and ways of being in what is the center for us uh, might be weird or not appropriate um, in someone else's center or in what is a margin to us. So there are, there are some cross-cultural dynamics of the margins. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, that can bog us down because we're, if we're sensitive to that, um, we, it can stifle us. Like, I, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to you know, make a faux pas or whatever. Yeah. I think um, Jeff Metters ended up coming to Denver and yes, did the he same did. thing with our church with teenagers. Uh, and I was a youth minister there, and I felt comfortable with a, a homeless teen coming into the church and hanging out with my youth group, and, and they feel awkward there. I felt very awkward going downtown and hanging out and feeling outnumbered by homeless teenagers hmm. and going, well, you guys aren't in my realm. I'm in your realm. Right. And this is, I, I, I'm used to dealing with a little bit of sin and a little bit of people who don't fit in. Uh, this is weird to be the minority. In this yes. Situation. Man, that's a great, great example. Yeah, the dynamics change um, when you're in a different space, in a different geography, when the, the makeup of the people is different. You can, you, you almost intuit, oh, wow, I'm, in, I'm in, socially, I'm in a different place. Yeah, right. Yes, ma'am. Um, for me, it's unpredictability. I'd like mm-hmm. to feel a lot of control in an environment. And yeah. With a marginalized person or group, and I don't know what could happen at any moment, that's very stressful to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So I'm an extrovert, and I can talk to anybody. The most challenging person I ever found to talk to was, have you heard of the term carny? Someone who works for a carnival. Right. Yes. So I was talking to this lady and just trying to make conversation. And uh, so one of the safe topics is, what kind of food do you like? So I asked her what kind of food she liked. And um, so across the freeway was this restaurant. And she said, well, they have good food. And um, it was I'd never been to that restaurant because it was a tavern. Okay, and it was so interesting because these people, I, when I saw them leaving at the end of the carnival, what I had thought had been storage for horses, because they were little compartments, that was what they were living in. Mm -hmm. And I had really no way to relate to this lady because her, her life was entirely different than mine. Mm. Food didn't really relate. Um, Schooling didn't really relate. Mm. It was totally different. Mm -hmm. And I have lots of friends from different cultures. And I relate to them by their food because it's, it's a, oh, so you eat this type of food and stuff like this. But there was, I just, that was the most challenging thing in my life. Well, that's an interesting observation. One thing, similar to some of the cross-cultural dynamics, one thing that the, the difference that's created at a margin, uh, the difference that we realize can sometimes leave us wondering, um, can I relate mm -hmm. to, to people? Do, do we share anything? Because that, that's usually the way that we strike up friendships, right? It's finding mm -hmm. commonality. It's finding shared interests. And what if we don't have those? What, do we, what if we're different? Um, what do we do? That, that can make, um, that can make the, the margins difficult. Yeah. So... Um, the, the question I'm posing is, um, what, what if there's a different way of looking at the margins? What if, there, what if there's a different posture, um, a, a different sense of anticipation? I think all of us intuit the, uh, the, the challenges of the margins, um, but what if we could find something more at the margins? The case that I'm making in this series of classes is that, is that of, all, um, of all things, um, and maybe this is surprising for some folks. Of all things, I think the person, the one we find at the margins is God. Mm -hmm. um, we find God at the margins. God is currently um, at our margins, at work, up to something. And um, so kind of the way, I'll give you the big picture of these three um, classes. I'm, I'm not going to talk a lot about the Bible or theology in this first class. I'm going to begin with experiences. Um, it, because isn't that the way God works? A lot of times, like in Scripture, you think about the story, the narrative of Acts. And, and how do they discern what God is up to? Except they have these surprising experiences that explode their categories. And they're like, what do we do with this? God must be working here. We, we need to pivot and audible a little bit. And so I, I'm going to start with some experiences and and a lot of them are mine or experiences that i've been connected to um, because i want you to know how personal this is for me this is not um, something academic or theoretical for me like this is something that's like invading my own life right um i do want to share a story about somebody you'll all know who had an a, a, a surprising experience 
um, at the margins um, as well as we close today. So I'm going to start with experiences today and then and, and hopefully get you curious a little bit. And if you come back tomorrow, we're going to talk about theological convictions, theological themes in Scripture that undergird this idea of finding God at the margins. And then in the third session on Friday, um, same time, same place, we're going to talk about practices. Um, what are what are practical ways of engaging the margins in ways that are healthy and good and in ways that help us to encounter God um, at the margins. So um, since, since I started with uh, primarily social and economic margin and of me being uncomfortable, I'll tell you a story along the same lines in the same margins um, that really that stretched me where I felt like, oh, wow, maybe someone's here. Uh, and that was when we first moved to Dallas to start Storyline. Um, we had in our hearts uh, this passion and desire to engage um, the young adult, young professionals that lived right in the city center, um, and, but also to be a church that worked for justice, that worked among folks who were down and out. Who, uh, so there's, there's a, um, a densely populated gay community right there in the city center. There's also chronic homelessness. I mean, there's this convergence of all of these different groups of people. And somehow we, we, wanted, to, we wanted to exist and be present in the, in the midst of all of those people. And to see, you know, what, what would happen. Um, we had no idea. Um, what we were doing. I can say that in large part, even 10 years later. Um, uh, we, we just wanted to show up and kind of see what would happen. So God started connecting us to young professional folks. And we're like, who, how can we engage with our, with our neighbors on the streets downtown? And we had a friend, uh, friends named Chad and Marjorie, who they lived in an apartment downtown. And they would just go walk around every week. And they would hang out with folks on the street downtown and so they they had made a whole bunch of friends with um, folks on the street downtown and we were talking we're like hey we've got a lot of young professional folks um, who are who are passionate about working for justice about caring for the downtrodden um, you have a lot of friends who live on the streets is, is there a way that we could um, get together like what if what if we did what Jesus said to do in Luke 14 when he says if you throw a party don't throw it for all your rich friends so that they'll pay you back invite you to their parties or give you social graces um, invite um, the poor invite the crippled invite those at the margins and then you really have to trust God for whatever social standing or reciprocal uh, benefits that you might receive by doing that well, what if we did that? What if we, what if we just had a party with, with our friends on the street and with these young professional folks and nobody served anybody? We just sat down at a table and we just hung out and got to know each other. So uh, the story would be terrible if he was like, no, we can't do that, sorry. <laughs> but he said yes, so, so we did. Uh, and I, we, uh, we set up a banquet room at the Spaghetti Warehouse in the West End of downtown in Dallas, and we were all kind of kind of converge at this space, and they would serve this service this great meal. There were about twenty of us that were coming, maybe twelve or thirteen of our young professional friends, and seven or eight of our friends and neighbors from the streets. And I remember walking up, and it was the first time I met um, Lowell and Cindy, 
and they had Lowell had at the time was living in a tent um, at some you know at some park near Richardson, and uh, I don't know Cindy sold newspapers on the streets downtown, and they are dog people. They take their dogs everywhere, and they had two big crates of their dogs, and they were and this is the middle of July. It's like a hundred degrees. It's really hot. We've just pulled up. And they're like, hey, I, they just told us that we can't take our dogs in the restaurant. I'm like, you think? Yeah, no, they, they don't usually do that. She's like, could you keep, you know, our dogs in, in your car? And I'm thinking, well, I mean, we might as well, you know, dump out a toilet, you know, in the car too, right? But uh, sure, yeah, let's do that. Wanting to be, like, hospitable, but being very uncomfortable and thinking, uh, you know, back to my fortress experiences. Oh, here we go. You know, this is stretching me already. But we get into this uh, banquet hall. The dogs are safely in the ventilated car out in the, uh, the parking lot. And all of us sit around the table together. It just so happened that um, one of my friends, uh, Raj, uh, was a part of this lunch with us. And Raj was not a Christian, came from a Hindu background. He was literally a rocket scientist. Um, but he was interested in this thing, this neighbor's lunch we were doing. So he was there with us along with several of the young professionals who are part of this emerging church. And uh, I've got to tell you, I mean, to this day, like I get chills all over my face and my arms imagining myself sitting in that room with my neighbors and, and how beautiful and revolutionary it felt to share a meal with people that I would have otherwise probably eyes down, you know, walked past, hoped they didn't ask, you know, for money or something. Uh, it, it humanized them um, to me. It, it, uh, there, there was this palpable beauty uh, and am- amazingness just to be at the, to, to be people together for, for, the, for the table to level our distinctions. And here we are, just people around a table. Um, so it's this intangible thing. I mean, it's still, I've got shivers like in my head right now, even remembering it. What's crazy is after this meal, Raj comes up and he says, um, hey man, uh, are you going to do this again? And I said, I, yeah, I we'll probably do it again. He's like, have you ever thought about like maybe doing it on a larger scale? And I thought, well, I mean, not really, but I mean, I guess we could. He said, well, if you do, um, so Raj is very wealthy. He has a Lamborghini in his uh, garage, and he flies a jet to go to USC games, you know, whenever he wants. And he says, if you want to do this again, uh, I want to pay for it. And if you do it after that, I want to pay for it again. If you do it on a bigger scale, I want to help pay for that too, because this was incredible. Like, this was just the most unbelievable experience. And at that point, I began to wonder, okay, there's something going on here. There's someone up to something in this room, um, in this mix of folks. There is this this palpable sense of the presence and kingdom of God at work among us, bringing us together. Um, What's amazing is that Lowell and Cindy, who I described earlier, um, afterwards, they said, so y'all are a church? And I said, yeah, yeah, we're a church. Well, can we come to your church? <laughs> At that point, we were meeting in somebody's apartment. And, you know, I immediately thought, um, 
So this is busting up my categories. Uh, I immediately thought, uh, well, sure, yeah, let's, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll get, you know, get in touch with you. See, in my mind, I had this real neat compartment. You know, over here, here's the margins. Let's keep them at the margins. Over here, here's the center. Let's keep it at the center. And near between, you know, near between the two shall meet kind of thing. Because that would just be, that'd be too difficult for me, I guess. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. It was just in my subconscious that, that asking, can we be a part of your church, kind of threw a wrench into my ways of conceiving things. So I called this guy who leads a social ministry. He's a brilliant man. He's a prophetic man in, um, in uh, uh, downtown Dallas. I said, Larry, what should I do? Uh, we want to be a church that is for folks in poverty. We also want to be a church for the up-and-coming young professionals. You know, um, the worlds are trying to kind of like mix together. He said, you know, Charles, there's a story in James about how um, these folks were, were um, having church gatherings and folks in poverty, they were saying, hey, um, you need to scoot aside and sit on the floor so that we can put this wealthy member right up here in this position of, of status. And he said, you know what James said about that? That's a sin. Don't do that. You're going to bring judgment on yourself. So Charles, you, uh, you know what I think you should do? I, I think you should open the doors wide. And, and invite them to be a part of your family. And I said, uh, you're right. That's exactly it. It was like, right? I mean, I, I needed somebody to hit me right in between the eyes with it. So we invited them in. Here, here's, the, here's the trip. Talk about finding God at the margins. We're this upstart church. Lowell comes to me and says, uh, uh, Charles, I get this disability check. It's like $703 every month. And I would like to tithe to Storyline, um, 10% of my disability check. Do you, would that be okay? Could we do that? And here I am working with, with young attorneys who are making six figures. Nobody's come up and volunteered and said, hey, can I be a financial partner with your church? No, it's Lowell. It's Lowell who, who has very little relative to the rest of the folks in our community who says, can I give? Talk about seeing God at work in unexpected. I did not expect that. That blew up my categories and my expectations. Turns out Lowell has greater, deeper faith than all of us in the whole church. Because we're talking about, oh, man, it's really hard to trust God. And Lowell's like, that's all I got. I trust God every day. If I'm going to get a meal, it's going to be because of God. If, I, if I'm going to have a place to stay where I'm not, you know, uh, pulled out or thrown out it's because of god everything i have is because i have to trust god every day whoa talk about finding god at the margins um i want to say maybe a year or two after that uh a a friend from a christian ministry in dallas connected me to a guy named greg and Greg worked for this Christian ministry, and he had um, uh, he worked I don't know, seven or eight years for this Christian ministry. And we had lunch. Uh, he and I and my coworker at this burger shop in Uptown, the place where we were planning in the downtown area. And we're sitting on these high bar stools, and 
he's telling us some of his story. He grew up in the churches of Christ and was part of them until he was in his early 20s. And then he left. He's in his mid-40s at this point. And then he left because uh, he was gay. And he did not feel um, like he fit in. That It's that social margins thing. Uh, there, we have categories for, for families and singles, but gay folks in church, there's no, especially 25 or 30 years ago, there's no category for that's a... Um, that's pariah almost. That's, uh, that's outside the box. And so, as I imagine I would do if I found myself in Gary's um, place or in Greg's place, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable. It would be a margin to me. I'd feel like I'm, I'm on the margins here. And so he left and, and didn't look back. Uh, he was telling some of the story about how he, um, he met his partner um, 35 years ago and been with the same partner, the same uh, 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 companion for 30 years. And I'm, I'm a young kid. I'm, I'm raised with traditional conceptions of uh, traditional Christian conceptions of sexuality and even some of the stereotypes that go along with that. Like, like one subtext is gay folks are promiscuous and they're flamboyant and they... Um, they, they, uh, they, the gay community has um, gay pride parades and they dress really skimpy and they walk down the streets and that, that's how all gay people are. And here, here's Gary and he's been in a monogamous relationship for 30 years. That's longer, far longer than lots of folks um, that my, my friend's parents hadn't been together that long. And, and on top of that, as I learn more about, about Greg, uh, Greg's story, I learned that his partner, for 15 or 20 years, has been struggling with very deep and dark mental health stuff. And so, so Greg is basically the caretaker for his partner. Uh, he... And, and Greg would tell me, he would say, you know, I think if I, if I left my partner, he would probably take his life or he would die from depression because he has no options. He would end up in an institution somewhere and it would be unbearable. And I, I think to myself, knowing, getting to know Greg and all of the, the stereotypes that he's exploding for me and seeing in him this deep, devoted self-giving love that he has for his partner and imagining how many folks in my neighborhood or even in my circle of relationships if they hit hit a wall that hard with mental illness and their spouse would they just find a way to kind of get out because it was too hard i imagine some people would but gary did not greg did not he stayed in that relationship and i couldn't help but to see the love of god in what, to me, was a margin, uh, a social margin. And here, here I am, the last place I expect to find God, and I see the self-giving love of God. You can say what you want about the sexuality piece, but the way that he cared for his roommate, the way that he stuck in there, even at great cost to himself, seemed like God 
to me. I saw the character of God in my friend Greg. Uh, so, I want to say, when did the president, the current president, came into office in 17, January 17? Mm-hmm. One of his first, uh, one of his first uh, actions, well, that, that first month kind of had all these presidential letters be kind of being written and one of the big hubbubs was about the travel ban thing and the countries and you know people you know immigration refugees um and okay so there's the political conversation that i'm going to leave right here okay i think it's important significant i don't want to have it right now but there's this other experiential piece um having friends in dallas who are muslim who are from countries on that list mm-hmm. and hearing them say i'm really concerned i'm i'm concerned for my well-being i don't feel people people drive past us and because things are so heated about this immigration conversation folks are yelling slurs at us um, we're having these awkward exchanges and i'm concerned i'm concerned for the well-being of my kiddos who are in school i'm i'm uncomfortable I'm feeling acutely at the margins of this society right now, and we uh, we heard that we were at the point at that point we were deeply connected with this network of Iraqi uh, Muslims who had uh, immigrated to the states in the last two or three or four years. So several of them are good friends of ours, and um, somebody in our community had the idea: what's a what's a gesture um, that we can offer? that shows our Muslim neighbors that we love them and we care for them and that we're their neighbors, they're our neighbors, and we want to love them as our neighbors. Somebody thought, well, let's go, let's just go to the local mosque. There's a, a, a large mosque in Richardson down the street from where we live. Let's go and let's hand out cookies and just smile and wave and tell people, hey, we're with you and we're for you. And part of the reason this was so significant is because it was a counter-protest of sorts because um, uh, some other folks around the area were arming themselves and standing across the street from this mosque with their guns as a kind of intimidation tactic. Like, we don't want you here, and we, we see you here. You're the other, and we're, we're armed. We're ready for you. So you can imagine, I mean, the, the, uh, the concern, the fear that would develop in the hearts of our Muslim neighbors because this is what they're seeing when they're going to mosque on Fridays. So we go on a Friday night, and uh, we get the permission of the imam, of course, um, before we go. Fortunately, one of our community members uh, knew him, was able to talk to him. And so we, we get a bunch of cookies, and we set up kind of on the... Um, on the side of the main entryway into the, the place of prayer and their, their main gathering place. Yeah. Incidentally, I saw on the wall um, a, uh, a note of thanks from one of our Church of Christ universities who had visited the mosque there earlier, uh, one of my former professors at Harding. Uh, and I thought, oh, we've, we have other friends who have been here to this mosque as well. Um, and here's what struck me. 
as we stood there and you know i'm i'm nervous i'm in a new place i'm feeling like i'm at the margins this is a cross-cultural kind of experience for me i hope this will be received in the spirit that it's meant you know with no strings just a gesture of love and care and um you know when sometimes when you're walking into a church building on your way to worship you know you you just had a hard conversation in the car, or you've been running late, and so, you know, you're kind of walking in, you're, you know, folks are making a beeline for, um, for the place of prayer, um, but, but as they look up, and they look over, and they see us, and we're waving, and that we, I think we have signs saying, you know, we're, we're with you, or we're for you, um, um, you're, our, you're our neighbors, they see us, and stop, and they start smiling real big, and they, come over and, and they, you know, get a cookie and, you know, shake our hands and then go back, you know, go in for their time of worship. You know, of course, there's the kids. Um, it seemed like, you know, there's uh, dozens of kids who would cycle and grab a cookie and run <laughs> off and then grab another cookie and run off. Uh, and, and afterwards, after their time of worship, they come, um, they're streaming out. And we're, we, we're just standing uh, in the, the middle of this uh, atrium entryway, and folks are smiling, and they're saying, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much this means to us, that you would think to do this in the midst of this time. Um, and I, I was blown away. Like, I, I went to offer a gesture of blessing, and I got a blessing myself. Um, we got to talk about the prophet Isa. Now, this is why we're doing this. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Isa. He is, um, he shows us this way of hospitality. And you know what? They agree. Yeah, he does. And so we, uh, we have this wonderful exchange. So it just so happens, this is our custom in Storyline. Some of our non-religious friends were invited to come with us to this time. And Franco and Shannon were there um, in particular. And I didn't know much about Franco and Shannon at this point. Um, we knew them from a board gaming group that meets at a bar every Sunday night. And we know them about a year. And it just, it takes time to kind of get that, get to that place of conversation with people. But they were really interested to come and share in this gesture of hospitality and love. And um, afterwards, we went to this taco place and we're, we're sitting down and I, uh, I'm sitting across from Franco and Shannon with another one of our storyline folks. And they say, you know, that, that really was something special, wasn't it? Um, I'm really glad that I, that I did that. Like I, and they, they begin to kind of self-volunteer. I'm not a very religious person. Anytime somebody starts with that um, disclaimer, space for the kingdom of God is about to open up. I'm not a real religious person, but, uh, you know, I'm, I consider myself um, an agnostic. You know, Shannon says, oh, yeah, I'm def- I was raised atheist um, all the way, which is a harder line than agnostic. It's like a, I'm, a, I'm really a believer in not God. Agnostic is kind of like, eh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe not. Uh, but I'm, I'm not really a religious person, but th- that, was, that was amazing. There was something sacred going on in that they're they're grappling at words to describe this experience that we just had together at the margins because they they experienced god and they didn't have language to describe it 
they were they were wrestling like well i'm not religious but it kind of felt a little religious you know it felt it felt spiritual it felt like we were connecting to something bigger and more transcendent uh, i think i think they were finding god at the, i think we were finding god at the margins all right what about you you have any stories you can tell uh, any any experiences come to mind where you can you can remember being in a place that that seemed like you know it was either socially economically racially otherwise it was a margin to you and yet somehow you experienced God in that margin and feel free to share it Yes, ma'am. Our children teach us something. I'm old enough to say that now. But we went on a family vacation at the end of the summer to New Orleans, and our daughter had been with Let's Start Talking in Cambodia for the summer. And this was like a couple of weeks after she got back. And we decided to do the cable, cable car you know, little ride, uh-huh. and it was after dark. Um, there was a stop, and these two, this couple got on, and they were in a heated discussion. Not anything physical, but there was some words back and forth. And she went and just sat by my daughter behind me, and he went to the back of the car. And I, I was already, you know. And my daughter turned to her and said, so what's your story? And I was like, okay, God, <laughs> I get it. But I just thought the the bravery there, just the right amount of, just the question to uh-huh. introduce the space. Uh-huh. And this young woman talked my daughter's ear off. She needed to be heard. Yep. So thankful. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, and that that uh, skips ahead to the, our third session because um, I think you're, you're hitting at, you know, what, what do we do when we don't feel like we can relate or how do we engage folks at the margins? Man, one, one good question yeah. um, can unlock, unlock mm-hmm. it. One question and listen. Yeah. You, you can experience God in asking a question and listening. Yeah. Anybody else? Think about Miss Wilma. So we had an after-school program uh, mentored at-risk kids. They lived uh, at the church I was at, maybe half a mile from my house, if that, from the building. All, all project housing, all the kids came from the same neighborhood. And I was taking one of the boys home one time. Uh, I've been in the neighborhood a lot. I've never been in his apartment. And uh, I'd given him a hard time that, earlier that day because he wasn't doing his homework. Um, he never brought books home. He didn't do any of his homework. Um, and I said, Key, you got to start doing your homework. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and somehow or another, we got on to talking. I mean, he's seven at the time. So we started talking about uh, brushing teeth. I don't know how, but he said, Mr. Jeff, how am I going to brush my teeth? Uh-uh. I said, Key, I will stop. I'll get you a toothbrush. That's not a big deal. He said, Mr. Jeff, how am I going to brush my teeth if we don't have any water? 
Frustrated because he's not doing his homework. Um, there's one mattress uh, in this apartment. There's a busted out window, an extension cord running from the other apartment, a space heater that, that's propped up. Um, and he said, Well, we do have water sometimes. Uh, Miss Wilma lives up. She boils some water and she'll, she'll bring it down and she'll bring this water. Uh, and I knew Miss Wilma and uh, she lived alone with four or five kids and um, you know at first glance you all kinds of ideas about her and what's true about her but what I realized is not only was she boiling water for, for them and bringing it down um, a couple of those kids weren't hers at all they just needed a place to go and I had been in a situation so we were foster parents and I looked in my affluent white church for a place for some kids to go oh yeah we'd love to help we can't do it and here was this woman who's living by herself with nothing and taking a couple kids that she had no family connection to. They just needed a place to go. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like I was at work in Wilma. In beautiful ways. Yeah. Uh, anybody heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Woo! I'm excited about the story. I get to tell you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, is uh, uh, he's he's German or was German. He um, he was um, uh, he was executed in the late 1930s um, or maybe the early 40s. And he is a he's a well-known figure uh, theologian from the first half of the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, another book called Life Together. That I mean these are these are these have really deeply shaped lots of folks in uh, all over the world. But you know, I, my friend references the the American church, the North American United States church. Um, he's had this really strong and powerful voice. Well, let me let me tell you a little story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer um, he's he's brilliant. You could probably, if you've read anything, uh, he's written. Uh, you probably tell that he's brilliant. Uh, by the age of 24, I want to say he had uh, multiple master's degrees. He might have had two PhDs by that point. He's 24, so he's finishing up his dissertation, and you know, you know, he's a star student uh he's very driven like it, one thing that folks say about him is that he always kind of had his own course like he he was self-driven and motivated and he would he would go faster and further than any professor would push him uh, so by 24 he's uh, been offered a full-time professorship at the university of berlin uh, but his supervisor there thinks man you're 24 like you're young i don't care how brilliant you are you need some life experience. Why don't you go and do some sort of postdoc experience before you come and take uh, your post with University of Berlin? And one thing that's interesting, as, as folks have dug into his sermons from that period of his life before the postdoc work, they notice this, uh, um, you know, this is post-World War I. Germany's been blamed for the, um, 
some of the stuff that's gone on. They're you know feeling ostracized, and the the German nationalism that fueled uh, Nazism and World War II, all of that starts to bubble up, kind of in in defense and response to that. And Bonhoeffer gets wrapped up in that. In some of his sermons, um, he he talks about the the German Volk, the German people, and and how in, in some cases it would be okay if folks outside of the German people suffered and died if it meant that the German people could be protected. Like he he is he's involved. He is he's invested emotionally and intellectually in the project that's going on in Germany that would later turn into the mess that it turned into. So, uh, 24 years old, I want to say about 1930, he, um, he heads over and does his postdoc work in New York, of all places, uh, and at Union Seminary there. And he told his lead professor, I'm going to hate it. I, I just know that I'm going to. Uh, it's going to be a bunch of mainline liberal Protestants, and they don't care about Jesus. They're, they, they have a different theological project than what I'm interested in. And um, sure enough, he gets there and he was right. Uh, he didn't really care. He didn't care for it. He wasn't, it, this was not a conversation he was interested in. And so you know what he did? Uh, he found some folks that he really resonated with. Um, the first set of folks was at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. This historically black Baptist church. And um, he taught a, a Wednesday ladies Bible class. <laughs> And he worked with the junior high kids there. This, you know, you've got, you've got this uh, a, a dynamite theologian from Germany, which is the center of academics. And he is, he is immersing himself in the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And um, another thing he connects to, we, we can see hints of it in his later writing, uh, is the Harlem Renaissance that's going on right about this time. Which, uh, for all you white folks... Uh, the Harlem Renaissance is the explosion of culture and arts and music and all of that that came out of the epicenter of, of Harlem in the 30s. And, and Bonhoeffer is interacting with that stuff. And, and in the midst of it, um, he is, he is he's reading about culture and arts. And uh, Dr. Reggie Williams, in this book that you have to read um, called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, he makes the case that Bonhoeffer encountered uh, the Jesus of the black church in Harlem. He, he encountered um, the black Jesus. By that, by that I mean the Jesus who suffers, the Jesus who comes alongside of those um, who are oppressed and down and out, the Jesus who empathizes, he discovered this Jesus, the, Je- the Jesus of uh, the impoverished and the oppressed and the marginalized. Bonhoeffer encountered God in Harlem. He encountered God among the black community, which for him, as a white German, was very much a social margin for him, right? And so he learns and grows and deepens in his faith. So much so, this is, this is what changed Bonhoeffer into the Bonhoeffer that we know. The Bonhoeffer who came back and was so ruined in the best sense of the term by his experience at the Abyssinian church and and in the Harlem Renaissance conversation, he was so ruined by that um, that he he didn't have much 
patience with University of Berlin. He thought, this is not what I want to spend my time doing. And, and that German nationalism um, that he had grown up with and started to preach about, well, he learned about the concept of race and racial inequality in Harlem. And it opened his eyes to what was happening in Germany. And so he becomes this outspoken critic of the nationalist church and saying, no, we can't do this, guys. This is going in the wrong direction. And he's so outspoken. We, a lot of you know the story. He's imprisoned and then later executed because he's such this, he's a radical countercultural figure. And a big part of it was the way that he met God at the margins. We find God at the margins. Um, so how, how do we know? You know, how do we know it's just not goosebumps? Oh, you know, it was a special experience. It was new. People were nice to me. That must be God, right? Uh, I was having indigestion that day. It felt like God, right? How do we know? Um, I'm bringing you a case from experience in this first session. Uh, what I want to do in the next session is to give some theological underpinning um, to say and to demonstrate that this is not, this may seem radical or surprising, but this is very much consistent with the story of God in Scripture and with the narrative of the people of God and the activity of God um, in the pages of Scripture that we find. And so I'm going to highlight a number, and there, there's not just one. There's a bunch of ways to get at God's work at the margins in Scripture. And so, you know, like looking through a prism, we're going to shine some light on all these different facets to kind of to show, to make a case theologically for why we should expect uh, God to find God at the margins. And not only that, why we should actively join God in looking for what he's up to on the margins. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, for those of you um, who, um, who didn't hear earlier, I'm Charles Kaiser. I work with a church planning ministry called Mission Alive. And... Um, some of the vision we feel like God is giving us for the way forward is to plant, to kind of make it our emphasis and aim um, to plant churches at the margins, whether it's rural churches or urban churches at the margins, whether it's among refugees and immigrants, uh, uh, any, any margins that we find. We want, that's where the kingdom of God is birthed. That's where the gospel comes alive. Uh, those are the kinds of churches that we want to partner up and train up uh, missionaries to plant in the United States and Canada. Um, another thing we're doing, because um, uh, we don't have enough to do, um, but also because we want to invest in emerging leaders, you know, the kids who teach us, right? Um, we, uh, we have this Mission Outfitters uh, initiative, which is like a, it's a residency program. So if you go to med school, then you go into residency to learn how to practice being a doctor. We're developing this residency um, for emerging church planners um, who are graduating from college or they're, they're ready to enter the world and they, they want to do this. They want to find God at the margins. They want to seed new communities of faith at the margins. So we, we want to send them into a laboratory, a laboratory, a training environment for a year or two with experienced church planners who are doing this all the time, week in, week out, and then send them out to do the same kinds of things. So Mission Outfitters is the residency program. Um, if you're interested in that, or if you know somebody who would be, take one of these. Um, if you have any questions for me, you can't talk to me today, 
that's my Twitter handle and my email. I'd love to continue the conversation. Would somebody be willing to pray us out? Oh, sorry. Anybody? Thank you, brother. Lord, uh, thank you for this time, and I pray that we will all be inspired, that we'll be challenged, and that we will all want to move beyond um, the comfort of what uh, we've become so comfortable with. You would teach us and help us realize that the loss that you're you're pursuing them, you're in love with them, uh, you're working in them. And Father, help us come alongside to, to be a part of that process. Uh, thank you for how you have a special place in your heart for broken things that are ignored by others. Uh, may our churches be known, may we be known as people that uh, we see the beauty and we seek that out to join you in uh, in how you love. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send your son's name. The church says. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a great afternoon.